So it's late in the evening of May 14th, 1948, and we find a man with crazy white hair pacing about in a state of great distress. More than anyone else, David Ben-Gurion had brought about the establishment of a new state of Israel, which he had declared just a few hours ago. But Israel's first prime minister may have been the only Jew in the world who at this moment was extremely very upset about the creation of the Jewish state. Today, everyone is happy, he wrote in his diary. Tomorrow, blood will be spilled. And he was very right. By the following day, May 15th, armies from Egypt, Lebanon, Syria, Jordan, and Iraq came pouring into what was now called Israel. The war would last a year, 1% of Israel's population would be killed, its overall territory would expand, the Palestinians would lose any shot at their own independence, and the stage would be set for protracted conflict with Israel's Arab neighbors for decades to come. And in the midst of it, Israel also had to build up a country. From housing an exploding population to democratic elections, from creating an army to ingathering Jewish exiles from all over the world, it was a massive to-do list and with barely a moment to take a breath. In other words, welcome to Israel's first day. I'm your host, Jason Harris, and this is the fourth season of Jew Ought to Know. I would say to young people that we can do everyone our share to redeem the world. At the stroke of midnight, as May 14th passed into May 15th, the British mandate expired and the state of Israel came into being. The Union Jack was lowered for the last time, and throughout the night, British troops, police, and civil servants boarded boats in Haifa to take them home. By dawn's early light, the British were gone from Palestine. In the end, despite all that had gone wrong, the Jews owed a great deal to the British. And what have they ever given us in return? Well, Monty Python, it was Britain that issued the Balfour Declaration in 1917, committing the United Kingdom to a policy of supporting a Jewish homeland in Palestine. It was the British who helped build up the country when they arrived during World War I, constructing the kind of infrastructure necessary for economic expansion, from roads and railways to oil pipelines and ports. The British engagement in the Middle East during the Second World War prevented Palestine from being overrun by Nazi Germany, the British supplied a system of justice, military training and experience, open trade and financial connections with the empire in Europe. All in all, not bad for 30 years' work. Still, if you listen to season two of Jew I Don't Know, you know that the Jews were not sorry to see them go. And so it was by late in the evening on May 14th that Ben-Gurion had much to be proud of. He had declared the first Jewish state in two millennia committing it to a path that looked to the ancient Jewish past for inspiration and to the lofty ideals of Western democracy for its future. He had united the Jewish people around the great cause of Zionism, which had achieved Theodore Herzl's wildest dream. He put proof to the longing of Hatikva, the national anthem, that hope is not yet lost. It was, by any measure, an historic achievement. And yet, that night, we find him in a state of grim purposefulness for he knew that mere hours after declaring the state of Israel, the new Jewish nation was now under attack. Mm -hmm. 
A few days before independence, an Arab woman crossed through a heavy militarized, tense, and dangerous border zone in order to meet in the utmost secrecy with King Abdullah I of Transjordan. Transjordan is what we today call the Kingdom of Jordan, next door to Israel. Passing overnight through Arab checkpoints, she was finally led into a quiet home where she sat down with the king to discuss a plan. And it turns out, she wasn't an Arab, just disguised as one. It was Golda Meir, one of the top officials of the Jewish agency and a trusted confidant of Ben-Gurion. It was not the first time that the two had met. Months earlier, Abdullah had promised Golda that should war come between Arabs and Jews, he and his army would stay out of it. There's a big picture question lurking over all of this. Back in November of 1947, the United Nations had voted to do three things in Palestine. Create a Jewish state, create an Arab or Palestinian state, and to turn Jerusalem into an international zone controlled by the UN and not by either Jews or Arabs. And yet, only one of those things ever happened, the creation of the Jewish state. Why wasn't a Palestinian state ever created? Well, part of the answer is here, with King Abdullah and Transjordan. If you remember back to season two, the leader of the Palestinian Arabs was Amin al-Husseini, the Grand Mufti of Jerusalem. And if you don't remember, that's okay. You can get the deets by going to the glossary page of my website, jewoutonow.com, and you'll find him listed under the People section. A bellicose anti-Semite who fueled much of the violence against the Jews in the pre-state era, he nevertheless remained the spiritual and political leader of the Palestinians even though he hadn't actually been inside Palestine in years. And as much as he and the Jews hated each other, he and King Abdullah really had it out for each other. So King Abdullah didn't want there to be a Palestinian state. First of all, he didn't want an Arab rival next door to him. And second, he really wanted that territory for Transjordan, especially Jerusalem's old city. And Golda Meir was here to talk to him because the Jews were fine with that idea, Better to have a moderate like King Abdullah on Israel's borders than the vicious Amin al-Husseini. So here's the deal that they wanted to make. If Transjordan wouldn't attack Israel, then the Jews wouldn't attack them either, and the land allotted to the Palestinians by the United Nations would instead go to the king. At least, that had been the agreement. But Abdullah knew that the Jews were about to declare their state, and he also knew that his Arab neighbors would attack, and he also knew that he couldn't be the odd man out in a gang war. Not in such a rough neighborhood and not on behalf of the Jews. He urged Golda Meir to put off independence for the time being. He wouldn't recognize the Jewish state, he said, and if his Arab neighbors attacked, he would too. He wouldn't be able to sit it out. And so he didn't. Three fronts opened up on May 15th, barely 12 hours after Israel had been declared, in the south, Egypt invaded through Gaza and began working its way up the coast towards Tel Aviv. In the north, the Lebanese and the Syrians attacked Jewish settlements near and around the Sea of Galilee. And along the Jordan River, the Iraqis attacked into the Jordan Valley, and the Transjordanian army made a beeline for Jerusalem, which was already cut off and surrounded from Israel. So Israel had some tough choices to make. The good news is that the Arab forces overall weren't that effective. By the end of the war a year later, they didn't really gain much. In fact, they lost most of the territory that they held or invaded at the beginning. 
But the bad news is that the Arab Legion, which was King Abdullah's army, they were the strongest and most experienced, and they were going to make the capture of Jerusalem incredibly difficult. Now, Jerusalem had already been under siege for months. During the civil war between Palestinian Jews and Arabs prior to independence, the Arabs had cut off the one road that led from the Mediterranean coast up through the hills to Jerusalem. And although Jewish forces had briefly managed to break it up in April, by independence, the Transjordanian Arab League had once again surrounded the city. Few supplies could get through the gauntlet of snipers and ambushes set up along the road. This trapped 100,000 Jews in Jerusalem behind enemy lines with dwindling supplies. The Jews were facing starvation and a steady onslaught of artillery strikes. They had few weapons, few bullets, and especially dire was the situation in the Jewish quarter of the old city. Although there were only about 1,600 Jews living there, the old city had deep symbolic and national importance, and they were facing total massacre if the Arabs broke through. A week before independence, a 22-year-old Haganah fighter named Esther Kalingold managed to get into the city on the last convoy that made it through enemy lines. The Haganah was one of the main Jewish militias in pre-state Israel, the Israeli army, before there was an Israeli army, which at this point in our story is still about 10 days away from being created. Now Esther joined only a couple hundred other Haganah and Irgun fighters desperately trying to shore up the Jewish defense. By Israel's first day of existence, the Jewish quarter had been totally cut off. The Jews in the old city were on their own. Esther appointed herself a roving communications and supply runner, darting back and forth around the old city with ammunition, messages, whatever food she could scrounge up, all the while dodging sniper fire and artillery strikes. In the frantic back and forth, she crossed paths with Nisim Gini, another courier. Ten years old and in the fourth grade, he grew up in the old city and knew every single alley and hiding place, perfect for staying hidden from the enemy and delivering messages. At night, Nisim was able to slip in close to Jordanian forces and bring back crucial intelligence to the Jewish fighters. With so few trained soldiers in the old city, every single civilian was needed to do their part, even 10-year-old boys. Alleyway by alleyway, house by house, Arab forces surrounded the Jews and backed them into an ever smaller circle of territory. Things were not looking good. Meanwhile, Outside of Jerusalem, Jewish forces were determined to break the siege, supply the Jews, and protect especially the Jews in the Old City. Prime Minister Ben-Gurion insisted that Israeli forces attack the Arab stronghold at a place called Latrun. Latrun was a hill that overlooked the road to Jerusalem, and was thus strategically placed, and it was also in Arab hands, strategically placed to prevent the Arabs from reaching the city. Ben-Gurion believed that it was essential to capture the hill and the fortress on top of it, but his top commanders disagreed. Yigal Yadin, the Haganah's top commander, didn't think the Jewish forces were capable of seizing Latrun against the well-armed, entrenched, and better-equipped Arab forces. And neither did Yitzhak Rabin, the 26-year-old officer in charge of the forces fighting for the road, a young warrior god who had become one of Israel's most famous leaders. But Ben-Gurion was adamant. Attack Latrun. Even amidst the all-encompassing war for survival that erupted on Israel's first day of existence, there was still the business of governing. A nation was being created. 
The very first act of the new Jewish state, as it was invaded by five Arab armies, was to abolish all restrictions on Jewish immigration to Israel. This was no small thing. As a symbol, immigration was at the heart of the Zionist movement, taking us back to season two here at Jew Ought to Know. Jewish immigration, primarily from Europe, was essential to the conflict with the Arabs and the British. That the Arabs didn't want any Jews coming in led to their campaign of violent opposition to Zionism beginning in the 1920s, that the Zionist movement was desperate to rescue the Jews of Europe from certain doom fueled their own resistance efforts against the British in the 1940s. And so repealing the dreaded British White Paper of 1939, which had all but closed off Palestine to the Jews trying to escape the Nazis, it was as symbolic a victory as the declaration of the state itself. It was a signal that finally, at long last, the Jews were quite definitely now in charge of their own fate. Politically, it makes for an interesting question about just who the state of Israel is for. On the one hand, Israel's declaration of independence, made just hours earlier, promised equal rights and equal treatment for all of its inhabitants, and particularly to the Arab residents of the new state. And yet in the same sentence, it declared that Israel would be open for Jewish immigration. Jewish immigration. No one else was mentioned. The very first line of the declaration singles out the new state as tied to Jewish history and the Jewish people. And so this first act of the new state of Israel both rectifies an historic wrong, but it also sets up a new complication. In a state that purports to be both Jewish and democratic, who gets to be in, and who is out, and why? I want us to sit with this contradiction, not to try to solve it, because it's going to come up again and again and again and how you feel about it might change with the circumstances over time. On a practical level, abolishing restrictions on Jewish immigration meant an enormous challenge that would dominate the country for the next decade and beyond. Israel had around 650,000 people on the day it was established, May 14, 1948. In five years, the population doubled. In eight years, it tripled. Opening up Israel to unlimited immigration meant that hundreds of thousands of European Jews came pouring in, but also hundreds of thousands of Jews from the Middle East. It wasn't just about where to house them all, although we'll find out that that was no easy task either. It was also that the tensions between these two distinct populations and the inequalities, perceived in overt acts of discrimination, and the clashing cultures, they all formed Israel as we know it today. So, hold all those ideas, the symbolism of Jewish immigration, what it says about the nature of the state of Israel, and the practical implications of such a huge influx of refugees from disparate parts of the world pouring into this tiny country. And some of these ideas can be found in the struggle to open the road to Jerusalem. First Arab attacks are fierce, and tribal troops make quick work of conquest in old Jerusalem. Ancient metropolis of Holy Land would not yield to ravages of time, but savage assault by attacking Arabs turns the sun-baked city into a broken, burned-out battlefield. In the drive to take Latrun, the hilltop fortress that the Arabs used to block the road leading to Jerusalem, the Israelis cobbled together a brigade of hundreds of young fighters to commence the assault on May 25th, 11 days after Israel's independence. About a quarter of them were Holocaust survivors more or less fresh off the boat from Europe or Cyprus. One of their commanders, a 20-year-old native-born Israeli named Ariel Sharon, 
wrote of his impression of them and offered a comparison. My platoon and I are lazing in an olive grove, he wrote. We're blending with the water, smooth stones and the earth, feeling part and parcel of the land, a rooted feeling, a feeling of homeland, of belonging, of ownership. Suddenly a convoy of trucks stopped next to us and unloaded new, foreign-looking recruits. They looked slightly pale. A stream of languages filled the air. I watched them. Watched them strip, watched their white bodies. They tried to find fitting uniforms and fought the straps on their battle jackets as their new commanders helped them get suited up. They did this in silence, as though they had made their peace with fate. Not one of them cried out, Let us at least breathe the free air after the years of terrible suffering. It is as if they'd come to the conclusion that this is the one final battle for the future of the Jewish people. Now, these survivors had little military training. Some didn't even speak Hebrew very well. And you can see in Ariel Sharon's attitude that they were looked down upon by the battle-hardened, sunburnt warrior gods who had grown up in Israel. And Sharon was right. Many of them, landing in the Holy Land utterly alone, now had suddenly thrust upon them the opportunity to fight for Israel and the Jewish people in a way that they hadn't been able to in Europe. They were determined to fight. This dichotomous role of Holocaust survivors was to play out for decades in Israeli society. On May 25th, around 4 o'clock in the morning, the Israelis were ordered into battle against the Arab forces at Latrun. Ariel Sharon led his battalion through a fog-shredded wheat field and within minutes found themselves under withering fire. Within a couple of hours, the Arabs had the Israeli forces pinned down in every location. Even worse, the sun had come out and the exhausted and wounded Israeli troops had no water in the searing heat. The ill-trained and ill-equipped Holocaust survivors suffered high casualties and the rest of the forces were desperately trying to get off the battlefields. Ariel Sharon was shot in the abdomen, and his friends were dying all around him. As he tried to crawl his way back to safety, he ordered his battalion to retreat, knowing that many were trapped and couldn't be rescued. Unable to move after a few moments, he turned over on his back and waited to die. Just then, a 16-year-old soldier in his command, himself horribly wounded, grabbed Sharon and the two of them just barely managed to make it out, limping for several hours until they spotted a rescue force at which point Sharon passed out. Ariel Sharon went on to be one of Israel's most fearsome and effective warriors. It's most ruthless, definitely it's most controversial. We'll be coming back to him again and again, and he eventually became prime minister in 2001. But from his experience at Latrun, he later demanded of all his soldiers and of Israel's army one single absolute commitment, that no one ever gets left behind. The Israelis lost that day, with at least 72 killed. Israel would spend the next two months attacking Latrun again and again, suffering more and more casualties, failing every time. It remained an Arab stronghold. But okay, so why am I going into the details of this one battle when Israel was fighting equally desperately everywhere else? Latrun was one of those battles that later became a founding myth of the country, into which everyone pours their own interpretations, like the Alamo for the United States or Stalingrad for the Russians. Yigal Yadin, the overall commander of the Israeli forces, forever insisted that the fight for Latrun was a tragic waste and a failure of David Ben-Gurion. 
Ben-Gurion instead argued that in keeping the Arabs engaged at Latrun, it prevented them from attacking Jewish Jerusalem, giving the Israelis the time they needed to mount an offensive to take the city. In that version, it was therefore a heroic and Herculean effort by Israeli soldiers who sacrificed themselves that Jerusalem might be liberated. It's impossible to know which is the right answer, but where you stood politically often indicated how you felt about the Battle of Latrun. And there's also the element, as I mentioned, about the role of the Holocaust survivors and the interplay between these traumatized newcomers and native-born Israelis. No one doubted their courage and their profound sacrifice. But on the one hand, you have Israelis like Ariel Sharon, who had this attitude that these immigrants shouldn't have been there. They were too weak and untrained and didn't know what they were doing. But for those newcomers, Latrun became a badge of honor, a way of insisting that Israel belonged as much to them as to the native-born. They may have lacked the strength and training of the native-born, they could say, but they fought just as hard, died just as terribly, and in their sacrifice earned their place in Israeli society. It was an early example of the great difficulties that those who came to Israel after independence had in integrating into society and being accepted. It was a tension that has persisted really even to today. So Latrun became this founding myth that meant different things to different people, but upon which Israelis projected these various perspectives around the War of Independence. And Ben-Gurion wasn't wrong that the fighting at Latrun was a distraction for the Arabs. But that wasn't going to do much good for the 1600 Jews desperately trying to hold out in the old city of Jerusalem. On May 26, the day after that first failed assault on Latrun, a Jordanian artillery shell came screaming into the Jewish quarter of the old city. It smashed through a building and exploded right on top of Esther Kalingold, the 22-year-old Haganah fighter. Carried to what barely passed for a field hospital with almost no medical supplies, she was laid on a cot with a shattered spine. She was severely wounded, but awake. Esther penned a letter to her parents, who were living in London. She wrote that should anything happen to her, she had no regrets. We have had a bitter fight, she wrote, but it has been worthwhile, because I am quite convinced that the end will see a Jewish state and the realization of our longings. Remember that we were soldiers, and had the greatest and noblest cause to fight for. God is with us, I know, in his holy city, and I am proud and ready to pay the price it may cost us to reprieve it. All around her, things were going pretty badly. The Jewish forces were down to a few dozen fighters. Arab soldiers were moving through the Jewish quarter house by house, destroying every synagogue in their path and laying waste to everything else. Nisim Guinea, the 10-year-old messenger boy, was still racing around from post to post, delivering supplies and communications. Arriving at a spot overlooking the western wall, he poked his head up to have a look. A Jordanian sniper shot him. He too was taken to a field hospital where his own sister tried to stop the bleeding. But without any supplies, Nisim Guinea died on May 28th. Posthumously drafted into the Israeli army, he is recognized today as the youngest Israeli soldier ever killed in battle. Later that day, Yitzhak Rabin arrived just outside the Zion Gate and saw a line of exhausted, wounded, and traumatized Jews walking out of the old city under a white flag. 
the Jewish forces had surrendered to King Abdullah's Arab legion. The few remaining fighters were taken prisoner, the rest were expelled, and just about every last building in the Jewish quarter was razed to the ground. In one of only a handful of times in history, the Western Wall was made totally inaccessible to the Jews. It was an enormous blow to Jewish morale across the whole country. Esther Kallingold had been evacuated with the other wounded to a spot just outside the old city. Early in the morning the following day, May 29th, two weeks after Israel's independence, Esther slipped into a coma and died. The old city of Jerusalem was lost. So Israel's first day and first two weeks were pretty rough, and tough times still lay ahead. The Arab victory over the old city was significant and tragic, but it was also one of their only ones, for the tide was turning quickly. But as the Israelis continued to fight along every border, a battle also erupted on the beach in Tel Aviv. But it wasn't the Arabs attacking. It was the Jews attacking each other. Barely a month after Israel declared independence, they came this close to a civil war. No one ever tells this story anymore. You're listening right now to Elisheva Shomron, and the music you heard earlier was Chava Alberstein. You can find links to these songs as well as more content, and especially some maps that are really useful at my website, jewedono.com. On the homepage, just click the red go button for today's episode and you'll get there. That's all for now. Talk to you next time. Lehitraot. See you later. Oh,